Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sega. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. This episode is also brought to you by Brave, the new web browser by the inventor of JavaScript. When was the last time you seriously thought about your browser? Many of us downloaded Chrome without even thinking about it, but it's time to upgrade to something way faster, totally private, that actually pays you for browsing. That's why Brave is the new browser that everyone is switching to. Brave is three times faster than Chrome because it takes Chrome's engine and rips out all of Google's spyware while blocking ads and trackers right out of the box. YouTube ads, too. So it works just like Chrome, except it's lighter and faster. Here's the cool part. If you choose to enable ads that you control, Brave actually pays you for any ad that you happen to see. You can then take your earnings and cash them out, tip them to your favorite websites and creators, or redeem rewards. It's like air miles, but just for browsing the web as you usually do. No other browser does this, and no other browser pays you. And no, Brave doesn't collect your data and sell it. It keeps everything local to your device. Brave is still a bit of an industry secret among lead tech users and privacy advocates, despite growing to over 22 million users in a very short period of time. You can be ahead of the curve, too. It's still early. Switching to Brave is super easy and quick. It lets you import your bookmarks, history, and replicate your entire workspace in less than 60 seconds. It's free, and all your Chrome extensions work in Brave, too. So listeners of the podcast, switch to Brave today. You can go to brave.com slash likeville and switch now. By downloading and using Brave, you're also helping support the Likeville podcast. Brave is available for your laptop, iOS, and Android. It's time to upgrade to the next generation of browsers with Brave. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Uh, today I'm going to be talking with sociologist Amy Kaler um, about um, the ways in which uh, the pandemic is changing our ability to deal with patience um, and anger. Good morning or afternoon, Amy. Good afternoon, John. Yeah, so you're over. You're in the middle. We were saying you're in the middle of a polar vortex in Alberta. You're going down to minus twenty-five and. We That's are, a- yes, yeah, and evenings down or nights overnight down in the minus 30s, and we hit that point where Fahrenheit and Celsius scales meet and cross so that it it's actually becomes colder in Fahrenheit than it is in Celsius or the other way around, something like that. But yeah. Where do they meet? It's like minus 40, right? Isn't it minus... I want to say minus 38 is minus okay. 38 Celsius, minus 38 Fahrenheit refers to the same you know, degree of molecular movement or whatever it is. And thereafter, they go opposite in a way which I don't quite grasp. But yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a strange, it's like, you know, living at the event horizon or something where scales of temperature just go out of whack completely. It's just, it's really wild. But, so you have this really interesting, because I've been hearing from a lot of people from uh, over the last year, and this is not just my immediate family and friends. I hear this from, I've been hearing this from students um, again and again from a lot of them that people have noticed this phenomenon where as the pandemic goes longer and longer, people 
feel like it's their nerves are, are frayed and they're, they have like less patience and they're more prone to sort of explode in anger over, you know, random things. Um, and, you know, everybody has, pretty much everybody has noted this, you know, as just part of their lived experience, but you have a really interesting and I think plausible theory as to what is going on here. So maybe you could just sort of lay out what your hypothesis is to our listeners. Sure. Um, yeah. I, and this, this is a hypothesis, which is, is completely untestable. So I could be totally off base, but with that caveat, um, yeah, I noticed the same thing that people sort of went from zero to 60 and by people, I, I mean myself as well, a lot more quickly than they used to that, you know, small minor things turned into, yeah, I don't know, expressions of, of anger or expressions of anxiety very close to the surface. And that's, um, yeah, it's not pleasant to live with that around you. And it's also not pleasant to to be part of it, to realize, oh my gosh, I'm doing this too. Um, if I was a psychologist, I think, and I think it's pretty plausible that you could understand this in terms of just the effects of being under stress, having all the uncertainties of the pandemic, um, dragging on and on and on. And, and, you know, month nine is quite different from week two. And so people's reserves of um, calmness or patience are worn down and we are behaving like people in crisis all the time, even though we're not under imminent threat all the time, you know, the back of our brain doesn't know that. Um, and so you, you have that, that just sort of lowered threshold for um, explosive action or explosive sentiment or what have you. Um, and that makes sense to me. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking also that there's something going on. There may be something going on with, with, temporality and with time that messes us up um, on the large scale when we can't remember what day it is, you know, did Christmas happen already? Uh, am I supposed to be at work? What's going to be, did this happen two weeks ago or a year ago and so forth? That may also sort of seep into these micro temporalities or, or, or micro stretches of time within which we react or respond or process events around us. Um, I know I've had the sensation certainly of being kind of adrift, you know, temporarily adrift um, with respect to those big markers of months and years and days and not knowing what day of the week it was and so forth. And I think it, it, it kind of filters down um, to a level where taking the, the time that's needed to sort of process what's happening around you. Somebody just said something really annoying or they did something really annoying. Taking that matter of seconds or whatever it is to take in what's happening, you know, let it settle and then respond in a calm way has become compressed. So the speed of our interactions, it feels to me, has increased. Interactions and things happen much more quickly and that means that they're much more likely to involve those first emotions that are triggered 
I mean, time is the thing that turns one emotion into another. You know, if someone does something that's really annoying to me, my first emotion is, you know, maybe anger and wanting to, in a, you know, nice wasp, passive aggressive way, express this anger (laughs) towards them. But with the passage of a few seconds, a few minutes, an hour or two, that anger might either just seep away or sort of transmute into something else. Like, you know, I, I understand why they said this or why they did that, or maybe they're having a really bad day or in the grand context of things around me, this isn't such a big deal. But when our, our temporalities in the moment are messed up, that power of time to transform one emotion to another one is lost because it, it is that sort of zero to 60 quick reaction. So there's something going on with temporality and how we experience it, as well as just the sort of lowered threshold for agitation because everybody's in a, you know in a state of mild to moderate uh, danger awareness all the time. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, in anticipation of our uh, our conversation, I actually did a bunch of reading up on to see you know what has been done in the literature. Um, primarily in in psychology and neuroscience on this, and there actually is some really interesting uh, stuff that's been done on this. And some of it is so is considered so solid that it's been been incorporated into a lot of, a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy. So um, basically, your the part of your the brain processes that are involved in um, measuring time and and sort of keeping time, and so those are quite identifiable and we can sort of tell by looking at a, a brain scan when those parts of the brain seem to be getting a lot of neural activity, a lot of, lot of action over there and when they're not. Um, and one thing that's uh, quite clear is that, you know, when people are, uh, for instance, when people are very, very happy, when you're having a moment of sheer joy, um, the part of your brain that is responsible for keeping time uh, sort of blinks out. It's it's not very active at all. So the whole expression like time flies when you're having fun, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a truer statement would be time stops when you're having fun. So mm-hmm. the like an alteration in your experience of time is actually key to uh, to happiness, right? So that. Uh, this is something which, um, you know, long before there was uh, the ability to look at brain scans or any of that stuff, this is something that a lot of thoughtful people have um, have picked up on this just through sort of introspection and talking to other people. Elizabeth Cady Stanton talked about this quite a bit in one of her most famous essays. Uh, Nietzsche talks about this, you know, where he says... Uh, in on the use and abuse of history for life, he says uh, happiness has always, always becomes happiness in the same way through forgetting. If you cannot set yourself down on the crest of the moment, forgetting everything from the past, if you are incapable of standing on a single point like a goddess of victory without dizziness or fear, you will never know what true happiness is. Even worse, you will never do anything to make other people happy. Forgetfulness does not happen automatically as superficial belief. people believe. It is an active process. Active forgetting is like a doorkeeper or guardian of mental health. 
There could be no happiness, cheerfulness, hope, pride, immediacy without forgetfulness. Right. So now, now the flip side is also strangely true is that um, when people are sort of spiraling down into really bad anxiety or really bad depression, uh, very often it's, it's exactly, you know, strangely enough, it's exactly the same mechanism. It's like when you are just totally gripped by fear or, or, or grief, like part of what makes that, um, that terror, that, that grief, that anxiety unbearable is the fact that in that moment, you feel like this is going to continue forever. Mm-hmm. You don't have any perspective. You don't have that. You don't have a sense that, you know, this too shall pass, but you feel like I'm, you know, and I, I've even seen this in a small way with, I don't know if when you were younger, if you ever saw somebody who's like bad tripping on, on some sort of, you know, on weed or, you know, mushrooms or acid. And the thing that makes people start to become really terrified and incredibly anxious when they're bad tripping is they think, Oh my God, my brain is broken. I'm going to be like this forever. I've done some sort of irreparable damage and I'm going to be in this spot forever. And that's when the terror. And so the first thing EMTs will do uh, in, in the, for a psych admission is they'll just sort of try and calm the person down and say, you know, this is going to pass. You're going to feel better really soon. <laughs> like This is not going to. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think what you're, you're onto something really interesting here that if, if basically the pandemic, you know, because, you know, we're mainly at home and everything kind of the days run into each other and we're not getting a lot of, we're not getting enough sunlight on our skin and our eyeballs and we're, all that stuff. Maybe this sort of is, is, is doing something all by itself that it, because it's messing with our sense of time and we feel like, um, you know, maybe this is going to be forever. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously if you ask somebody straight out that they're going to say, no, I, I, I don't believe that. But emotionally it feels like this is mm-hmm. forever and it feels like we're in a kind of groundhog day. And maybe that's why people are responding in such a, with such a short fuse. I think that's, I think you've got a neat idea there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What you say about senses of, of, temporality and permanence and you know and ephemerality or transience also makes me think of the way some people write about what what trauma is or how people who have like real sort of PTSD problems experience a, a moment which should be far away like the, you know this is something that happened 10 years ago but it's experienced as though those 10 years had just disappeared and it's happening right now and it's not going to stop so people um like extreme experiences like those that would give rise to some sort of trauma also involve uh, temporal alterations you know when someone has a flashback there it's like the years or the time that separates us from something else have disappeared and it's all happening now and and now is eternal um, so our, our minds under extreme conditions do do weird things um, with time. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not likening a pandemic to a, you know, a sort of individual trauma, trauma or experience of 
of something threatening life or existence, although that's the way it's been for some people. That's not necessarily the way it's been for the majority of people. But I, I do think that the inability to sort of see or imagine the future and the future keeps changing, like, you know, are things going to get a lot better? Are they going to get a lot worse? They got worse. They can't possibly get any worse. Oh, look at that. They just did. You know, there's um, alterations in what the future feels like. You can't really get a a grip on it or get a a purchase on it. I was thinking um, earlier today of, uh, you know, how how tired I am of hearing um, words like unprecedented, uh, record-breaking, skyrocket. If I never hear that again, I'll be be happy. Um, Not so much in the last week or two when, at least in North America, pandemic things are looking a bit better, but for a while there were these con- these modifiers constantly being used, which all carry the meaning that this is an event um, which kind of has no past and no future. There's no no one alive who remembers a, a pandemic, a global pandemic like this, and who can say, oh yeah, this is just like the way it was before. Nobody has that in, you know, unless they're like 150 years old has that accessible. So there's kind of no path to what we're experiencing. And there's also no knowable future because it is unprecedented, you know, historically unique, never happened before and so forth. So we're going through this thing that can't be anchored in the past or the present. It's to the point where I I wish people would stop, you know, via the news or whatever, reminding me that this event has no past. No one has any memory of what this is like. Um, And this event also has no future because we don't know what's going to happen. And I, well, yeah, I mean, it looks like I I was listening to Sam Harris's podcast the other day and he had um, this woman. I, I always forget her name. She's a, a sociologist and she, She's written a lot on the pandemic, and she's she's one of these people who's just been you know, right again and again and again. Oh, she wrote for the New York Times. This she's is tur- um, tur- she originally Turkish, she was born yes, in Istanbul. Zeynep, and I forget her last name, but it starts with a T. Yeah, I know who who exactly, you're referring to. Exactly. Yeah, she's great. She she was. Uh, it, it's one of the best episodes of the Sam Harris podcast I've heard in the last year. It was just she's so unbelievably smart and thoughtful and interesting. And but she's, she made a very similar point to, to what you said. It's just, you know, I, I lived for quite a long time in, uh, in Europe and Eastern Europe, and there were still lots of people alive who had actually lived through world war one and world war two. And they had lived through all these like just crazy changes. And so they, they just provided a kind of, perspective to whatever you know i happen to be very exercised about at the moment they would say well you know stuff has happened before that was that was pretty pretty terrible and we didn't think we would get through it but but we did and we didn't think we could ever rebuild and and we did and it actually didn't even take that long (laughs) it took like about you know 20 years basically 15 but and things already looked much better 10 years later so it's uh she said it just provided this perspective, and I feel like now because we're all, even people who 
who claim to sort of know about history and have perspective emotionally they don't mm-hmm. you know emotionally they feel like everything is like unprecedented another grim milestone <laughs> exactly just, and yeah and that that is the thing is is in if you if you go for cognitive behavioral therapy because you're struggling with depression or anxiety they will sort of try and train you to um, to you know exactly the way a buddhist would you know, or a stoic teacher would thousands of years ago before any of this stuff, but they'll teach you how to kind of try and control your thoughts a little more. And one of the first things they'll tell you is, you know, the kind of the evil thoughts you have to worry about is catastrophizing, Mm -hmm. right? And catastrophizing is where like you have, uh, you know, one, you know, bad argument with your teenager and you're like, Oh my God, she hates me. Our relationship is poisoned forever. I'm a terrible mother. I'm a terrible father. <laughs> like, you know, you, know, you catastrophize, you like kind of, and it's, it, but a lot of catastrophizing, it seems to me, is like very much linked to what you're talking about. It's linked to a particular assessment of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that somehow this is, is going to be um, forever. Now, I'm wondering how exactly, how do we get out of this? Is there, is there a way to get out of this? That is a really good question. And if I could answer that question, if I could say, yes, I see a way to get out of it and and this is what it is, then I probably wouldn't be having these experiences of temporality being mixed up because I would say, see a way to get out of it and this is what it is. Um, So I'm honestly, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I have a lot of hope it vaccines and vaccination and that once everybody's vaccinated then things can resume you know more or less as normal but i i don't know when that will be and there've been enough sort of unexpectedly bad things happening with this pandemic that, that i can't really kind of trust in or have faith that that science is really is going to to save us even though it looks like science is going to save us so there's nothing that i'm certain of in terms of um the way ahead uh partly because things have happened over the last year that i would have thought were impossible like there's no way this could happen you know, the U.S. coming up on half a million people dead from a, a contagious infection that is um, not inevitable, Put you know, put it that way, um, or the extent of deaths around the world, um, the, the toll that's taken on the elderly. I, I would not have believed that that could actually happen if you'd asked me two or three years ago. Um, and so because of that experience, I... I'm reluctant to say, yes, there's a clearly once we get enough vaccines into enough people, then things will be back to normal. There's always this feeling, well, you know, something else could happen. Something else bad could happen. Um, and I don't know how we get away from that. I think maybe we we learn to live with it. Yeah. Well, I, I've got a couple of different sort of ideas I wanted to run by you. I mean, they're kind of, they're wacky, but they, I think, so first, first one is I was talking to a buddy of mine who's, um, 
he's always been, I mean, he takes his religion pretty, he doesn't, he doesn't take it too seriously, but he takes it, he's an observant Muslim, uh, kind of sort of, I guess, garden variety Sunni uh, Muslim, but he's quite observant, but he actually recently started, he started with Ramadan and then he, he started really sort of keeping the call to prayer and like the praying different, you know, the, the times you're supposed to pray, set times and everything. And he said, you know, something about just going through those rituals mm-hmm. and kind of reminding myself of of time scales that are bigger than the right. next Dr. Fauci speech or the mm-hmm. next like episode of PBS, you know, with Judy Woodruff or whatever. <laughs> he said like something about kind of like being plugged into these larger time scales. Mm-hmm. Um, it yeah. it has this incredibly calming and he goes, it makes me more kind of nice to my wife and more patient and more relaxed and less sort of obsessed with whatever's happening on Twitter right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've heard similar things from a number of all of them kind of religiously um, observant people mm-hmm. who that say something about going to church or going to the mosque or going to the, it just it kind of just plugs you into a different time scale for a little bit and then you come back to the one the day-to-day one and it doesn't seem like so insurmountable or unprecedented yeah (laughs) yeah i mean what do you what do you think of uh, what do you think of that yeah i i have a lot of thoughts about that partly coming stemming from research that i've been working on with people who identify as as uh well it's a long story um a lot of evangelical christians is is the short version and there's yeah time when you mix in religion time becomes much more complex than just something you know you measure on the clock and you know how long an hour is and so forth um what your friend is talking about sounds like the ability to sort of through the means of of the the call to prayer or the the rituals or the repeated actions, that's almost like a bridge or a passageway into a sort of sacred temporality, which is not as frantic or as unknowable or as, as, you know, random and and unorganized as um, the temporality of, of the pandemic. I mean, whether that's, for some people that could take the form of thinking, you know, well, God is in charge. God has a plan. You know, God is, knows everything that has happened and will happen. So there is someone who, you know, the future may be unknowable to us, but I, through my observances and my rituals have put myself in the presence of a sort of divine being to whom it is not unknowable, you know, that, that there's, I've encountered or talked to people for whom it's not as simple as just sort of determinism and, you know, God's made up his mind, what's going to happen, but it's the idea that what we experience as chaotic and unpredictable and sort of meaningless is only that from our perspective and that if you know we move ourselves into god's presence 
we may not actually understand any better, but we know there is an intelligence which does understand, you know, so that's a way of, of sort of shifting temporalities in some religious traditions. Um, the monotheistic ones tend to be kind of linear and forward moving. Like we're, you know, we're moving towards events um, and we have a history of events and so on behind us. And I know it's kind of a cliche, but non-monotheistic or less monotheistic religions often have a more sort of cyclical temporality. I'm thinking of like, I believe it's the Mayans in Central America who believe that the world was on, this had to do with the stars, like cycles of incredible numbers of thousands of years or whatever that, that kept turning, you know, one age kind of turns and then another age turns around again. And that kind of cyclical time also provides co- a way to, to experience daily life as a little bit more coherent and a little bit more organized. You know, it's it's on this wheel, this wheel is turning, um, and it'll turn around again. So it it completely makes sense to me that people would find in religious practices which offer them that bridge or offer them that passageway out of kind of you know messed up temporalities at the macro and micro level that we're living in and into um experiences of time which are not as messed up yeah well i you know one of the things i i ask my students at usually at the end of the semester and this one class i teach it's called the, the pursuit of happiness and I asked them, like, to, if you found out that um, you were, that you had six months to live, or if you had, you know, five, I give them a couple of different scenarios. Mm-hmm. How would that change the way that you're, the way that you're living right now? Would you drop out of school? Would you go and, you know, travel somewhere? Would you go and, I don't know, and uh, and why? You know, what is your rationalization for those different things? And it's, it's always very fascinating to see, you know, how, because, you know, that's, that's in a way, that's, that's one way at getting at the question. If you were thinking right now, you're sort of taking for granted that you have this big stretch of time mm-hmm. ahead of you and that you have to think about this things and these things and that thing. But what happens if that sense of time was changed, right? Would that, what would you do? Instead, I mean, like my, my, I remember when my grandmother was quite, quite old and I, we were sort of trying to make sure we could get all of her stories, you know, before she passed. And, and I remember we talked to her about World War II. She lived through the bombing of Britain and she drove an ambulance and she had all these crazy, crazy experiences. Like the love of her life was killed. She had like friends were lost, all this stuff. And she said it was like one of the most exciting and fun periods of my entire life. <laughs> what? <laughs> she goes, it was, you know, I know, she goes, I know that sounds terrible. And there was a lot of suffering. And there was, but she said it just, there was something about that living with that experience of time where you really don't know right. if you're going to have how long you're going to live. Like, you know, I, some of my best friends that I grew up with were like killed like really early on. Like we had no idea. So basically we 
we had, we were united in purpose. We're going to like defeat Hitler. We're going to defeat the, and we're basically, we had so much fun because mm-hmm. like when we had like a breathing, like a place to breathe, we partied so much. We laughed, we sang, we drank, we stayed up till four in the morning. We had so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> she said, I had so much fun. And she said, it's, it was to a large extent because of this changing of our, there's something very, very rich and interesting there about, you know, how for better and for worse, if you have, if you play with people's sense of time, it can unlock, you know, deep wells of sadness and grief and can, you know, just open up this really bad stuff, but it also, it can it can also unlock real joy, mm-hmm. right? Which is mm-hmm. weird. I mean, like mm-hmm. that they would be so close together, or at least seemingly close together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm um, reminded of of after. Um, I mean, I, I get this from reading like British novels from the 50s or whatever. After the Second World War, there's this idea of you know people who had a good war and people who had a bad war, and, and people who had a bad war were, you know, they'd been through a war, they were devastated by it. But there was this idea of this concept of someone who'd had a good war that consisted of a lot of experiences like what you're talking about, of, you know, feeling alive and there's this sense of purpose and you're connected to other people because you share this purpose of defeating Hitler and there's something about, you know, knowing that, death is nearby that heightens vivacity and and liveliness and a lot of other emotions as well. So it, um, you know, not that wars or plagues or whatever are, are good things in themselves, but they can, like you say, unlock experiences or ways of experiencing moments as they go by, which are not, which are locked, which are not unlocked um, in more normal times when there's not a vast uncertainty or a vast sort of danger out there. And it's not, I don't think it's just attributable to like adrenaline rushes. I don't think that's the full story. Oh, no, no, it's definitely, it's definitely more than that. I I also sort of been trying to make sense of this question in light of uh, there's this, uh, this guy, Canadian guy who's now at Harvard, I've been, um, I'm teaching on one of his books this semester. Joseph Henrik is an anthropologist and he wrote uh, The Weirdest People in the World. And he also also wrote um, a couple years ago, uh, The Secret of Our Success, which is all about the human race. And he's, he's the guy, uh, or he's one of a couple of social scientists who just threw a massive, wrench into the whole psychology profession about, uh, I guess this was 10 years ago. Was it 10? 12 years ago. They published this article. It it was right away put on the front page of Nature. It was like on the front cover. It It was really, really devastating. He basically just raised a question, which I think somebody like you who's worked in Africa and who's worked in different places, it probably has occurred to you many times before. I know lots of anthropologists have told me that it has occurred to them, but 
he said, you know, maybe our conception of human psychology isn't really, um, isn't really like a conception of human psychology. It's a, it's a conception of a particular kind of human psychology that is Mm -hmm. produced by um, Western, um, highly educated, industrialized, rich, democratic Mm -hmm. um, nations. And that all of our, you know, the vast majority of our uh, research into the human mind has been based on college students from right. uh, the mm-hmm. West. And he mm-hmm. said, what if college students from the West are are strange and atypical in some way? Mm-hmm. And so he actually, you know, he first they basically laid out their, their ideas and why they thought that this actually would mean that we would have to get rid of the big five personality. We would have to get rid of all, all these pillars of the field. And um, then he went out and actually did the research and um, he's come up with these two massive, amazing books on the subject. But one of the things he says in there uh, in the, the second book, the weirdest people in the world is that he says that if you live in a weird society, it. It basically, he said, obviously, all humans are good at measuring time. That's not like something that you mm-hmm. learn in a Protestant, you know, capitalist Western country. But in if you're brought up in those particular weird societies, they really, really encourage you to develop that part of your consciousness a lot. And it's it's so well developed that if you take somebody, you know, a typical person who was brought up in a, in a very, you would be a perfect example, by the way. Uh, somebody very, very Protestant, very kind of like, uh, <laughs> if you take somebody who's like from a very weird society and you uh, take a bunch of them and you go on a hike or something like that, or you go somewhere where, uh, let's say it's like an overcast day, so they can't just like look at the sun and figure out tricks like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, you ask each of them, how long have we been on this hike? What would be your estimate? As it turns out, um, people from non-weird societies, like people who've grown up in like, you know, some rural islands in Fiji or in the Kalahari, they are terrible at guessing how long you've been alive for. Like they really, they're like, they're like me with my horrible sense of direction. They really, they get, they're so off. Whereas like people in terms from, of, hours and minutes like yeah oh it's been about two and a half hours yeah estimate is so completely completely it's laughably wrong yeah they just don't have so the stereotype how people who come from non-weird societies being late for appointments all the time and being flaky and and not being Mm -hmm. punctual he says that is actually there's like some really good cognitive reasons for that they literally have not learned how to you're acting like this is because they're like a bad person or they're impolite. Like, no, it's like taking somebody from a society where everybody rides bikes mm-hmm. and then bringing them to this society and being surprised that they don't know how to drive. Like mm-hmm. that's a skill that you learn in a particular uh, society. Right. So I, one of the questions we're having Joseph Henrik on the podcast in, um, in a, a month from now. And one of the questions I, I want to ask him is, is it possible that the way in which the pandemic is messing with our sense of time, is it possible that that would be hitting weird people much harder mm. than no, because they're, 
it's so central it's so central to them to have like yeah it's like this is like you know i have my calling and god is watching me inside and so i, I can't right. be idle hands in the hands of the devil i have to be diligent i have to be doing my thing you know like my mm. little pilgrim's progress you know so um i don't know does that does that ring true to you it it definitely makes sense i think you know people who've I, I'm thinking of uh, um, being in um, South Sudan a few years ago with um, Sudanese colleagues who were physicians who'd been trained in um, the global north and the, then they come back to, to South Sudan to work. So they lived um, in different societies where time is treated differently. And they, I mean, they would joke about this, that what they called... Um, TikTok time, which is, you know, you measure everything by the clock. And if you say 1030 in the morning, you don't mean 1029 or 1031. And then there's time, which, you know, has nothing to do with TikTok, which is a bit more fluid. And so if you say 1030 in the morning, the salient part of that is the morning part, you know, and whether you show up when it's nine o'clock on the watch or when it's 1130 on the watch, well, you know, it's still the morning. And they got a fair bit of humor out of, you know, imagining people from TikTok time being dropped down into their, into their, um, where they lived and, and vice versa and so forth. All of which is to say, yeah, I think, I think you're onto something. Um, I, people who fit that, you know, that weird paradigm, which is very Protestant, if I may say so. Um, we almost, um, absorb this idea of time as measurable and quantifiable and external and also useful. That's how you know you're getting stuff done. Like I have this deadline for myself that I set and I met this deadline and I, the fact that I had this date in mind um, enabled me to get this done. So time is, it's like a tool that we use to accomplish what we think is important to accomplish, which is you know, being prompt, getting, achieving a lot, um, being an overachiever, what have you. So time, it's not just something that measures the world around us. It's actually an instrument that we use like language. And just like with language, I I don't think to myself constantly, gosh, I'm speaking English. Look at me speaking English. How interesting. (laughs) You know, um, I, I don't, I'm not aware of the extent to which I've absorbed or internalized an approach to time, which is not natural and which is not inevitable. Um, I only become aware of that when I get sort of dropped into another context where people have internalized an entirely different sort of relationship to time. Um, For some reason, this is making me think of, back to the pandemic, um, um, a moment it would have been, and the fact that I can't can't quite remember when it was tells you something, but it would have been... um, in the summer, uh, looking at the license plate on my car, and in Alberta, um, you you know you pay a registration fee annually. You've got a sticker you put on your license plate, and that shows you paid your registration through to you know the end of 2019 or 2020 or whatever. And um, seeing, you know, I, I don't know why this caught my attention that the. the sticker I had on my plate said um, 
November 2019 and having this moment of, oh my God, I forgot to renew my registration. Um, I better take care of that. I don't want to get a ticket, blah, blah, blah. And then thinking, no, wait a minute. November 2019 was only like five months ago. You know, it it felt like when I saw that number, you know, oh, it felt like this must be well over a year ago, and I've I've missed um, a deadline. You know, I I've committed a you know a time a time sin or a time uh, uh, misdemeanor by not attending to something in time. But in fact, my it was it was just that my sense of time was messed up. It was you know from 2019 to 2020 is how long that sticker was good for, and I had only you know, renewed my registration a few months ago. So I was fine. That I figured out cognitively by like looking at the calendar. But the the subjective experience was to think, oh my gosh, November 2019, that was a really long time ago. I better do something about that. And that has to do with the pandemic, with living, you know, the feeling of having livid, livid, lived through five or 10 years worth of exogenous shocks, you know, from yeah. the situation in the world in a short space of time. November 2019 isn't that far away from me temporarily, but it felt like it was way far away from me. Yeah, I know I know exactly what, uh, what you're talking about. I've, I've heard that from many people where you suddenly like, oh, where did this week go? Or where did this day go? Or where did the months go? And, yeah. and you feel like, oh, yeah, we just uh, we just talked like uh, last week. And then I actually look and actually I, I spoke to the person like five weeks ago. Yeah. But my yeah. my sense of uh, my sense of how far mm-hmm. you know, something is, is like really it's really messed. It's it's confused. Right. And that that's a very disorienting now i think if you're somebody who um if you're somebody who lives very much in the moment or at least you you live you're much more connected to like what's happening in a particular day you don't you don't think very much about the past I and mean, it's not as if you have amnesia but you just don't give that a lot of bandwidth and and you don't think very much about the future you kind of you're, you're a shitty planner you, know, you don't like you know you just sort of like kind of uh take things day to day as they say in like you know recovery <laughs> or whatever um, <laughs> right. like if you actually live like that uh well i don't know if that's necessarily always correlated with great outcomes but if you if you tend to live like that already then maybe pandemic time is not um, it's not a big deal for you. Mm-hmm. Like today's my today's my mother's birthday. She's seventy one years old. Oh, nice. And my yeah, yeah she's uh, my mother is very much. Um, she lives very very much in. I wouldn't say the moment, but in the day. Let's say she she very much sort of enjoys small creature comforts she's right. like uh, like Nasa Proust or something and right yeah uh, she she enjoys she she lives like voluntary simplicity she's a total hippie mm-hmm. she never she never wears makeup she has like very little clothes she but little things like her tea or her like 
she'll get so much exquisite joy out of just having her tea mm-hmm. and listening to music and and singing and playing music and reading and writing and like looking out the window. I, I know this sounds totally corny, but like this is actually what she's like. Like she mm-hmm. she is such a totally content and happy person, right? But a lot of that is is linked to the fact that uh, she just does not. Uh, she's not in denial about any of the bad stuff that has happened in the past. I mean, like I can, if I want to talk to her about like a very painful memory or something really shitty that happened, she will readily talk to me about it and she remembers it and she can talk as much as you want about that thing. But there's no kind of emotional investment. Mm-hmm. She's she's here. She's not like what you were saying about trauma where people mm-hmm. are just like, replaying something again and again she's the total opposite of that Mm -hmm. there's no amount of her consciousness that's stuck in time somewhere else and she doesn't stress about uh, the future very much so i think for that reason and a number of reasons switching to pandemic time has not been you know Mm -hmm. it it hasn't been horrible right in the way that some it hasn't been as disorienting because she's sort of She's she's already kind of tuned into that particular, I guess, right. you know, mode of temporality, or I don't know what you call like right. way of experiencing time. Uh, I don't know. I think if you're if you're in the thick of things uh, with you know kids and teenagers and deadlines and career and stuff like that, I think maybe it's more disorienting. Right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you're when you're in the thick of things, you often have expectations for the, the future. Like this is going to happen. You know, my kid is going to graduate from high school and then do this, that, and the other. And I think we all know that the unexpected exists, and and that you know you have to be flexible, and things come up that that you don't don't see coming or, or what have you. Um, but some people are better at actually absorbing that truth and living with it than others. So when you have something like the pandemic come along, which is, um, I mean, in a way, it's not a wild card because every epidemiologist on the planet could see this coming, uh, that this something like this was going to happen. It was just a matter of, of like, what year it would happen in. Um, But in terms of people living their daily lives, this was not something that anybody was anticipating that, oh yeah, 2020, I'm going to be dealing with losing my job or my kid's school being closed down or both of them at once or what have you. Um, It's, I think I'm stating the obvious here, it's hard to recalibrate your expectations. especially if those expectations extend out more than, you know, into the future, more than an hour or a few days to think, well, you know, okay, my kid, I don't know, maybe they're going to be repeating grade six because that at home schooling thing was just a failure or I'm may never be in my office again um, because my employer is going to seize the moment to cut costs and, you know, make us all work from home forever. So when unknowable things or unpredictable, getting a bit lost here in terms of what I'm trying to say, um, 
when the future... I see where you're going, so... <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Going. Well, when, when the future is not only not what you expected, but it's nothing that you can expect because you don't know, like, how bad is it going to get? You know, how deep is the abyss? How far is the drop-off or the, the plunge from where you are now? Um, circling back around to sort of patience and anger... I, that, um, again, I, I think sort of messes you up temporarily on, in a lot of ways, and they manifest in, in impatience or the lack of the ability to, to sort of take time to let things settle because your ability to work with time and to understand time and to manage time has been screwed up in all of these other ways. Your ability to, to understand it or manage it or work with it in small measure is also affected, I think. Yeah. I had last semester, instead of that question on the final exam that I told you about where I, I asked them, you know, if you found out you were going to be dead in six months or five years, or how would you live your life differently? Instead, I, I, they, I had assigned uh, a book. I know you've, you've read Nicholas Christakis's book, Apollo's Arrow, oh, yeah. which is all about the, you know, the pandemic. And so I had them, I had them read that. And one of the questions stemming from that reading, which was, uh, as I said, you know, tell me like uh, sketch out in an essay of, I think I gave them like a thousand words or something. So like basically sketch out um, what you're going to do when this pandemic is over. What's your plan? What's right. your, post, your post pandemic plan? So are you going to keep on with school and with education? If so, what are you going to study? Are you going to go travel? Are, you know, if so, where are you going to go? What are you going to start your own business? What are you going to do? Um, and so they wrote these amazing essays. And what surprised me, and I thought of this, you know, when I, I saw the things that you were posting about pandemic time and stuff like that, it, is I got all these messages over the non-holidays Mm -hmm. uh, saying from students saying, you know, that essay was like the, so amazing for my mental health, like oh. writing it was so good. And I've actually gone back and like read it and I've shared it with like my mom and with like my brother and with my friend and like something about that exercise just make me so happy. Mm -hmm. And I think what it is, is like when you think about the future and you think about like hope, I think maybe that, you know, in a small way can serve the same function of like breaking you out of that mm -hmm. spiral of badness where you mm -hmm. feel like this is going to be forever. Right? Yeah. And, and just to kind of dreaming and having uh, hope that, okay, well, this is going to pass. And then here's what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, it's neat. I've seen that um, that sort of the ability to imagine the future, some degree of a future, positive future orientation, in um, noted as a an indicator of sort of good mental health in the pandemic. That if you know if you're worried about your child or your friend or what have you, if they're you can be a little bit less worried if they're talking about you know, when this is done, I want to do X, Y, Z, or, um, you know, like 
my daughter's talking about she when she goes to university, what she wants to study, and she has all these ideas, some of which are realistic, some of which are not, but they're all set in a future which she can imagine, which is different from the present and which holds opportunity and excitement and so forth. So sort of dwelling in the future, living in the future, um, that you imagine that's better than the present is is actually not a bad thing. If people can't do that, if they can't imagine anything that's better than what they're going through, then that's, you know, that's a yellow flag. That's, that's a warning sign. Um, and I, you know, I know certainly for myself, I indulge by imagining, okay, once this pandemic is over, assuming that, you know, money was no object and obligations were no object. Where do I want to go? Where do I want to travel? And, you know, thinking up all of these itineraries, you know, 98% of which will never happen. But just the act of doing that, of creating a, a possible future, which is not wildly unrealistic. I'm not talking about, you know, interplanetary travel or anything like that. <laughs> but whether it happens or not, I don't know. But that ability to sort of um, live in the future is despite everything we get told about, you know, being in the moment, being in the now, in some respects, being able to be in the, in the what will be or the what next um, can be a good resource to draw on in times like this. Oh, I think, I think absolutely. I mean, I've always been very suspicious of all that, you know, live in the moment and be mindful and all that stuff. Cause like, you know, generally speaking, the people I've, known with some exceptions obviously my mother's an exception to this rule but um but most of the time the people i've met who actually do live like that Mm -hmm. are either very mentally ill (laughs) uh, really serious have some serious substance abuse problems like they're like a a drunk or a junkie or something it's very easy to live in the moment when you're just Mm -hmm. sort of always in an altered state and wondering about how you're gonna keep this going or Mm -hmm. get the next the next tie like um or if they're if if they're not kind of dysfunctional in in an obvious way like that um they're just like really flaky people Mm -hmm. who you know forget to pick up their kids from daycare Mm -hmm. and you know and like forget to that they have the stove on like i just i don't see anything about that way of being uh, or okay, that's an exaggeration. I don't see a lot about that way of being mm-hmm. that actually looks to me like, like, mm-hmm. like something I want. <laughs> <laughs> well, when it's to, to the when that way of being is pronounced to the extent that you lose track of of you know causality, and if I spend another twenty minutes, I don't know, like talking about the Grateful Dead with my buddy, then I'm going to miss daycare pick up and my child will be shamed and so forth. If you lose the ability to kind of figure out what causality is or what the consequences of your actions are, then yeah, you're, you're not a terribly functional person. If that's your version of living in the moment or living in the now, I, you know, with substance abuse or addiction, it's sometimes described as like the, this disease of the eternal now, like it, you know, you forget about all the stuff that happened in the past and you don't think about what's going to happen in the future, including what's going to happen in the future because you just, you know, I don't know, 
spent all your money on on your substance of choice or you've just failed to show up for work for the eighth time and gotten fired. It's all about how you're feeling right now, right in the moment. And that, you know, recovery means <laughs> developing some kind of relationship to what happened in the past and what might happen in the future that doesn't involve obliterating them just to stay in the now where you're more comfortable. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I remember asking my, my advisor in grad school, uh, I asked him once, cause you know, I, he's very, very happily married. And, um, and I knew that, but I knew that he'd been married before. And, uh, so, you know, at some point, I, I don't know, it came up and I asked him, I'm like, so, so what happened with your, your first marriage? And he said, oh, he said, well, the short answer is we had a kid. Um, <laughs> and, and he goes, but it's much longer than that. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, I grew up in this super, super repressed, very Protestant uh, household where everybody was like really kind of tightly wound and you're supposed to be kind of really sort of thinking about the purity of your intentions and your heart. And you're, you're not just trying to like be a good person. That's a given. Uh, it's more than that. You're trying to actually sort of feel and think like a good person. You want to be actually doing the right thing and doing it for intelligent, good reasons. Right. So it's a lot of pressure, right. And you're really thinking in terms of, you know, God time and all mm-hmm. these like long sweeps and everything. So. Uh, he said that that was me. And then the, you know, the sixties hit and, you know, everything's like hippies and flower power and he's in California. Right. And he ends up at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And he said, he goes, I met my wife and she was just this, like the quintessential hippie. She just lived, she lived, she's very beautiful. She was very kind of, uh, she just like lived in the moment completely. She was incredibly spontaneous and uninhibited and, she was everything I wasn't. And so we got together and that was absolutely wonderful. And it was heaven. And we, we complimented each other really, really well. And we had 10 great years, but mm-hmm. then we had a kid. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, when you have a kid, uh, all, the, all these things that, that seemed like harmless <clears throat> sort of personality quirks became really unattractive when she would completely space out that our kid was walking into the street like our toddler mm-hmm. was wandering or would not pay attention you know at least like knives and fire or <laughs> like and, yeah. you know, and after and, and he basically all those things that he had learned about how right. to be in the world turned out to be really really well suited to grown-up adult life right of, you know having a job and she couldn't hold down a job she couldn't uh, she not just couldn't hold down a job, she couldn't maintain relationships with people mm-hmm. and couldn't maintain. <clears throat> and so he said, uh, we finally split up. But he said, you know, it's interesting because like she didn't change. You know, right. it's just life changed. And suddenly right. I didn't find that attractive at all, at, at all anymore. Right. And so which is, uh, I thought it was a very, one of the most honest assessments of the demise of a relationship <laughs> right you know, yeah but but yeah. it is but that is, that is somebody who's living in the moment uh, and you know, doing all that stuff that the yoga people say we're supposed to be doing and it, you know it doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily right. look so good you know 
it works in some situations, but then in other situations, like when, yeah, like when you have a kid, not not quite so much. It's reminding me of something that um, uh, somebody I know who's a, a psychiatrist said about the pandemic and how that's affecting her clients, that people um, of her, her clients, the people she sees, people who have um, been living with or dealing with depression and anxiety for a long time and often fairly profound and have developed you know a set of skills or abilities to manage this condition so that they can be functional people in the world and have jobs and friends and whatnot that that they actually are kind of doing okay in the pandemic partly because they're used to living in a world where everything can go bad or where you feel as though in you know an internal world a psychic world where you feel as though everything could fall apart at any moment and your, you know, you have a heightened sense that that things are are dangerous and so forth. So they've, um, it's a bit, it's kind of like business as usual, except that now the outside world, the external world is actually validating your internal sort of subjective landscape. So it's like, okay, there's no longer this disjuncture between how I feel, which is that you know, things are bad and they might get worse. And I, you know, I'm, I'm struggling to keep a sense of hope alive and so forth. And then the outside world where people are are happy and they're buying cars and they're going to street festivals or whatever. Now the outside world aligns with my inner experience a little bit better. So while you, I mean, for many people, the pandemic could be sort of falling off a cliff mental health wise for some people, you know, who may have already fallen off that cliff or have been grappling with this for a while. uh, The pandemic is, you know, they do okay. They have some of the, the resources or the skills for navigating through this um, that they've developed under situations where their subjective world, their psychic world was very different from the world around them. So I thought that was interesting that, you know, if you're full of anxiety or something like that, um, you're now in sync with the rest of the world in a way that you might not have been three or four years ago before this happened. Yeah, I, I find questions like that just absolutely, absolutely fascinating. Because if you think about, you know, why we why why we've been so successful as a species definitely part of it is that um we're just incredibly good at working together in groups where our teamwork is like a massive massive superpower and it's but part of what makes it work so well is that we have all of this sort of delicious um sort of variability like in terms of everything from our skill sets to our aptitudes to to even like our consciousness mm-hmm. that we have a certain amount of a diversity of of kinds of consciousness within a human group and you know it's kinds of consciousness that maybe seem sort of maladaptive um mm-hmm. in normal circumstances because you know when you were talking i, I immediately thought of my mother-in-law mm-hmm. right? like uh, Annalisa's mom is is just she's somebody who I think a lot of the time 
is really worried about all sorts of things that could go wrong. And that makes her, you know, often quite anxious. And she's quite kind of like always wondering, you know, what horrible thing is about to go wrong. But I tell you, in a crisis, she's amazing. <laughs> right. And the shit actually hits the fan. You know, somebody gets, dies in an accident, some horrible thing happens. She's cool as a cucumber. She's mm-hmm. like she's like Tommy Lee Jones in a fucking action movie. She's yeah. like totally chill because that's like she's ready. You know, like mm-hmm. she's ready. She's living in this catastrophe mm-hmm. kind of headspace all the time. She's worrying, and because she's worrying a lot, she's actually um, preparing mentally mm-hmm. for how to how to respond in in a bad situation. So she's, she's been, you know, coaching. She's been like training for this disaster all the time. Yeah. Right? So yeah. I, I think, I think stuff like that is really interesting that we have these, these people in our midst to have a hard time because of their difference. But it turns out like those differences might really come in handy when we have, mm-hmm. when we're thrown a curveball that we're not really mm-hmm. prepared for. Mm-hmm. Right, that there's somebody, there's somebody in the human community. If you're listening to everybody and taking input from everybody, there's somebody there who has a an answer you didn't think of. Right, right. Who who will look at what's going on and think, well, you know, what else did you expect? Like I've been mentally preparing for this, or I, I've been, you know, mentally living in this time for ages, and now. I can enact it, you know, now I, I can, there's not that um, adjustment to, oh my goodness, things are not going well in the world. What a shock. Let me, you know, I'm going to experience the shock for a little while. I think if your set point or if your normal state is things are not going well, everything's going badly. When, as you say, the shit really does hit the fan, you're not going to be like, caught up for a while in the horror of shit hitting fan because you've already sort of been there and done that, you know, and you can just get ahead with, okay, so what do we do with it? Whether that means, you know, I don't know, some, some sort of form of very dramatic Tommy Lee Jones type action, or in the case of a pandemic, one of the hard things is is that it often means just sort of inaction, like, yeah, okay, I guess I'm going to stay home and not, interact with other human beings for a while because that's what I have to do and here we go but the 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 shock of this bad thing happening may not be as pronounced if you're already kind of living in the expectation of bad things happening all the time yeah I I love what Barbara Ehrenreich said where she, she said you know I I always thought that Oprah would be the first positive thinking president and it turns out it was actually Trump, right? <laughs> yeah, Trump. Trump is the is actually if you if you look past all of his sort of you know big, loud, angry, straight white guy thing going on, if you look past that stuff and you just listen to what he says, he actually is like a thoroughly, thoroughly a product of that certain kind of like if I just ignore problems, they'll go away. If I just think positively, things will go away. And I guess, you know, if you're worried about stuff that you have no control over or stuff that is like actually not real, then mm-hmm. yes, that is actually 
a great solution. <laughs> you know, you should just stop thinking about that stuff. But there are like a, a lot of things that are real. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And if you stop thinking about them, like it's not, they're not going to go, they're not going to yeah. go away. Um, you know, and this is, I, I've been having this discussion with a couple of my friends for the last few days about um, the, the whole issue of racism and stuff like that. And there's, there, there are, there is a school of thought and uh, Jonathan Hyde says this to some extent in an attenuated form, that if you just keep talking about racism all the time, then you make, you make the problem bigger, you feed it by talking about it, right? And I can see that there's a grain of truth to that in some circumstances, mm-hmm. but mostly I think it's just sort of Trump thinking. It's like, mm-hmm. like <laughs> I, don't, I don't see how, like, just pretending it's not there, pretending mm-hmm. a problem isn't there is going to make it go away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it, I mean, it, I don't know. It's uh, it, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like a very good idea, <laughs> very yeah. sustainable idea. Yeah. It, I, mean, I want to just yeah, sure. I wanted to just finish with because um, we're going to be going a Zoom meeting with my mom for her birthday. Oh, nice. in, a, in 10 minutes but I wanted to finish just on a I guess a potentially hopeful note and I'm wondering if for people who are not plugged into a religious tradition that they they can't sort of follow heed the, the Muslim call to prayer or, or go to church or whatever uh, or even is there anything you can think of that people can do um, that you know, I guess a secular thing that people can do that could shake them out of this. Um, are there things that they could do to sort of get out of this despair spiral of time, which leads you to be testy and impatient? And Yeah, that's a good question. Um, hmm. Think of a couple of things. Um, one of which one of which is a half formed thought and the other is a more of a formed thought so let's start with the one that's more formed and and this is um this is completely culturally constructed and coming out of my own overdetermined way of of seeing or understanding the world um but uh, you know f- for me what helps is taking on you know little projects not in the sense of we have to compete to see who's got the most you know great instagram worthy pandemic thing going on with our baking bread or or what have you but just something that you're working on you're working towards um and that you'll be able to continue working on it or working towards it whether you know, the lockdown ends or it's extended for six months or whether you get vaccinated tomorrow, you get vaccinated in in two years. So something that enables you to feel like there's generativity or creativity is possible and you're doing it and you're working on things that take time to sort of come to fruition, but they're not being sort of forced on you or imposed on you by a crazy world of things that are beyond your control. So, I mean, I'm a fan of stuff like, um, I don't know, going out and identifying all the trees in your neighborhood or something, or, um, 
just like reading, uh, I'm trying to think, all the works of Doris Lessig, if that's your thing, not in a sort of self-improvement, I'm going to make myself a better person and and, um, I'm going to be sort of relentlessly upbeat about how all the good things the pandemic has brought, but just as, as a way of sort of having some kind of positive engagement with a process that unfolds over time um, so that you, you have, I don't know, maybe a more positive or a less reactive relationship to the passing of time. I'm not sure if that's making a whole lot of sense. Oh, no, it's, I, uh, it's it totally, it totally makes sense. That's, you know, and especially just for our listeners, I, I very much encourage you to go and follow Amy Kaler on <laughs> Instagram because one of the things you do as you know, it's not connected in any obvious way with your day job, but uh, Amy makes this beautiful collages. And I think like one of the things that's, that I find so enchanting about your collages is that it's a lot of them are just these, it just feels like you've managed to like bottle nostalgia. <laughs> you you have like, you'll have like these old pictures and these old like artifacts and they're kind of artfully presented in this way. And it's, it just, I don't know. I, I'm not very good at talking about art, but it's, um, it, I find them very, very profoundly affecting, but they do give you a sense of, of history and of rootedness in, in place and in, and that there is, that you're somehow connected to, to histories and other people beyond your own ego and your own life and your own lifespan, which I think is uh, at a time like this is, is a really good exercise. Yeah. Well, thank you for your, yeah, for your kind words. I, I love messing around with that stuff and and that is something which gives me pleasure sort of in the midst of of craziness and um yeah and part of it i think is, is i think i'm agreeing with you yes because it does connect you to in my case i use like old photographs that i find at like you know flea markets and bins i've got no clue who these people are or or anything like that but it but by making you know arrangements and things with their pictures, it does give me a sense of connection to something that is not me and that is not my immediate direct experience of, you know, oh crap, there's another COVID outbreak at my kid's school, so she's going to be home for two weeks, and you know why can't I get groceries pick up any time sooner than three days and and whatnot? It, it does connect you to something that is is greater than or or not greater than that is more than or other than what you are experiencing right now in this moment so this moment does not fill up the entire universe there's a lot of other things that are out there in the universe and if things that keep you mindful of that reality i think are important the other thing i was is the the half form thought i was going to mention is um (laughs) <laughs> so we can end this on um, a tobogganing accident that I had last year where I um, did some fairly significant damage to um, to my right leg. And I'll spare you that just suffice it to say that just because a couple of 
14-year-old boys say, hey, you should do this. It will be really fun. That doesn't mean that you should do it um, because there may be like a fence post at the bottom. Um, but I found for a while, I mean, it, it's, you know, it could have been a lot worse, but I had Can you run again? Sort of. <laughs> well, um, yes, but I'm sort of getting back into it slowly because the one consistent bit of medical advice I've gotten is if it hurts, don't keep doing it. So, you know, run, but if you start experiencing pain here, slow down because it is possible to do more damage that's not going to heal itself. So I'm, I'm cautious and I'm doing tons and tons of walking all over the place instead which is a good thing, but that's, you know, subject for another, yeah, I've seen you, another I've podcast. Seen you, I've seen you, you posted some of your step counts. It's unbelievable. <laughs> like, where is this woman going? Like, it's, the, <laughs> the North Saskatchewan River Valley, up and down the ravines. I mean, Edmonton is, is awesome in terms of our, our access to wild things right in the city. Um, but anyway, after I had done this, I, you know, because I'd messed up nerves, I had some problems with proprioception. Like I couldn't sort of figure out where one of my feet was in space. And so I'd trip over things or I, this sort of automatically knowing where your body ends and space begins and being able to not fall over and so forth was a problem that I kind of didn't expect from just hitting my leg. And where this ties into pandemic time is that I realized it's kind of like temporal proprioception is messed up because there's been sort of something similar to a physical trauma. We've hit, a, you know, a, a tall post going rapidly on a sled in a sort of social and collective sense. So the fact that, you know, something that happened last November seems like it was five years ago, or I can't really remember what day it is because my sort of temporal proprioception, my ability to orient myself properly in time has been messed up. Being able to identify that's what's happened and it's understandable and it's not that either I'm losing my mind or that the universe is completely, you know, collapsing into entropy. This is the, a cognitive, a, a, a psychic phenomenon, which is explainable by reference to things that have happened um, is a way to kind of keep yourself from going crazy with it to think, yeah, of course I'm kind of messed up about time and what's happening and how fast my reaction times are. It makes sense. My temporal proprioception has been just given a big whack. It'll take a while for this to work itself out. That is a really, really fantastic analogy, and that is a super profound place to end. We're gonna have to do. We're gonna have to do a, a part two on this because I'd love to. There's like there's a, there's two. First of all, I would love to explore that analogy in depth. That is such an amazing analogy, um, and I think, I think that's anyway. I think that's amazing. Uh, but okay. the second thing is we didn't even. I wanted to talk to you about uh, the fact that you know Health Canada and the CDC yet again have come out saying that uh, young people under the age of 25, uh, one in four of them have uh, seriously contemplated suicide in the last month. Oh, okay. Uh, wow. So, which is like a whole, which links to, you know, what you're 
talking about it in all sorts of ways. But anyway, so uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And we're, we definitely have to do a part two of this. I would love to. And, uh, this is really fun. And, yeah, this is really interesting. And um, yeah, I'm going to go wish my mother a happy birthday. Okay. Well, that's great. <laughs> that's great. Uh, please pass my regards to your mother, although she's got no clue who I am, but it's still, you know, it's a happy oh, occasion. Oh, no, she does. She knows who you are. I showed <laughs> okay. her your collages. So <laughs> take care. Okay, great. Talk to you later. Bye. Okay, bye.